The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. Ascended into hell, Christ our living head will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe and trust in Him. I will trust in my Redeemer, sing of His love that lasts. Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album, Order of Service. By way of introduction, pastor is an acrostic which stands for preaching all salvation through one Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Jesus. The English transliteration for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by Scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome to Pastor Yeshua. In part one of this episode, we asked, answered, and discussed four questions. In this episode, we continue to ask, answer, and discuss important questions regarding the definitions, parameters, and theological significance regarding the creation ordinance of biblical marriage, which by God's grace and mercy we pray to receive discerned insight as to the answers which will agree with the whole counsel of God's Word. Continuing, question 5. Since man is constantly advancing and becoming better, shouldn't we assume that the changes we see are for the best? The answer is that because the atheist, the secular humanist, and the world begin with the assumption of natural selection, evolution, and man as the beginning, center, and end of all things, it's natural to believe that man can only move forward, up, and get better with time. There may be setbacks, hiccups, and mistakes, 
But in the larger scheme, man is devising his own eventual heaven. In fact, according to the atheist and secular humanist, it is religion and the myth of God which in large part has held man back from his true potential. The sooner we eliminate those who refuse to recognize this reality, the sooner we can all evolve to the final frontier where hate, war, hunger, and ignorance are extinguished from the world. Conversely, the truth is that all that is the world and man are an act of special creation by God from nothing. In the beginning, everything was perfect so long as man remained covered by grace through faith in God and his word. It was only as man deferred to Satan and fell for the lie that we could achieve being good, being like God, apart from God, by our own works and efforts that we fell into sin. Unfortunately, sin and rebellion are not a static, stationary force. They are like cancer, which continues by time to grow and multiply without end. Eventually, everything that which was good becomes bad. That which was bad becomes good. Worse, by far, is the fact that man is not merely beset by dispassionate forces such as sin and rebellion. Man is involved in war between God and Satan. There are two sides, and there is no middle ground. Satan's original and greatest weapon is to cause doubt, disbelief, and division between God and man. God is in the process of redeeming fallen man to himself as detailed in his word, the Bible. Meanwhile, Satan is an avowed adversary to both God and man. There is a set time that God only knows when this war comes to an end and Satan is defeated. Satan knows there is an end as well, but is unaware of the exact timing. What is clear is that, according to Scripture, as time grows short, Satan grows more desperate. Scripture is clear that things have never been right since sin entered the world, and they only get worse as both sin and Satan tighten their hold on fallen creation. The irresistible reality is that apart from the new birth and the power of God's indwelling Holy Spirit on man, as man is drawn to faith in the redemptive finished work of Jesus Christ, Sin, rebellion, and Satan take their effect on every man like water, which always finds its lowest level apart from God. Make no mistake, if we see good in this world, it's not because of man by himself. It is because God still works through men to accomplish his perfect will and plan despite man. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15-18 through 18 say, quote, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passes away, and the lust thereof. 
but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever, unquote. Question six. Doesn't Jesus, who is supposed to be, quote, God in the flesh, unquote, say, quote, judge not that ye be not judged, unquote? Well, the non-Christian world, and even many who are themselves ostensibly Christian, fall into the trap created by out-of-context teaching. To those who are affected, this verse in isolation means that anyone who judges another isn't really a Christian, because if they were, they would be tolerating everything and everyone, no matter what they do, so as to avoid disobeying Jesus by judging. The only problem is that it is clear from the entirety of Scripture that God bestows his gift of discernment upon those who have received his Spirit through the new birth, through grace by faith in Jesus Christ, and his completed work. The question is, of what value is discernment? if the one who exercises it is unable to look at themselves and all creation, compare it to God's word in context, and determine whether what they see, hear, and experience is either good or bad. In the first place, judgment in a biblical context is actually a good thing. As Paul the Apostle would point out, the entire lesson of history from Genesis chapter 3 until Jesus came as Messiah was for the law to serve as a schoolmaster to teach us, each and all, that there is none good. We have fallen and come short of the glory of God. If, by God's grace, we are convicted of this truth, then we judge ourselves according to the, our own merits as worthy of death and hell. However, if we repent and place our faith in Jesus' finished work, then our just judgment falls instead upon Jesus, and it is He who fully pays all our debt on our behalf. Either way, there is judgment by God, and that judgment is just and perfect. If we do not judge ourselves and reckon ourselves dead in Christ by faith, but alive in Christ by his resurrection, then God will judge us and we will be dead to God by way of our trespasses and sin. Paul verifies this concept in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 31 and 32. Quote, For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world, unquote. Secondly, the Old and New Testaments are both replete with examples of demonstrating how and why God's people are instructed to give judgment. For a complete discussion of these examples of judgment, I would direct the listener to the two-part episode entitled, a biblical perspective on hate and judgment. In short, verses like the following balance the notion that all forms of judgment are somehow evil and to be eliminated. John chapter 7 verse 24, quote, Judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment, unquote. 
1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, quote, Do ye not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, are ye unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Unquote. And finally, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3, quote, Know ye not that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? Unquote. In addition, Jesus himself calls his disciples then and now and sends them to preach the gospel and heal the sick and commands them, saying in Luke chapter 9, verses 3 through 5, quote, And he said unto them, Take nothing for your journey, neither staves nor script, neither bread, neither money, neither have two coats apiece. And whatsoever house ye enter into, there abide, and thence depart. And whosoever will not receive you, when ye go out of that city, shake off the very dust from your feet for a testimony against them." Unquote. Here, the obvious question is, how will any of Jesus' disciples know who is and who is not, quote-unquote, receiving them and the gospel which they bring without discernment? Worst of all, for the anti-judgment brigade, how will any of the disciples, quote, shake the dust from their feet for a testimony against them, unquote, without violating the supposed 100% no judgment commandment assumed erroneously. Finally, when we look at the second part of the anti-judgment brigade's pet verse, we get a better context in keeping with what we are discussing. Quote, judge not that ye be not judged, for with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged, and with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again, unquote. So, in contrast to saying, don't judge ever, period, what Jesus is saying is, don't initiate or pass judgment without first examining and judging yourself by the same standard. In other words, the issue is not whether or not judgment should or shouldn't ever exist. Instead, the issue is using a true, just, and a uniform measure of justice for all men, beginning with oneself against God's word. In this respect, only God's outcalled ones, i.e. the church, have the necessary capacity of humility, discernment, sincerity, respect, justification, and sanctification to utilize judgment for its intended purpose, to either reconcile, and restore fellow believers, or to serve as a witness against a fallen world stuck in rebellion. Question 7. Christians often like to point out sin where it applies to things like marriages which do not comply with their, quote, traditional, unquote, views. Aren't Christians being hypocritical and they are no better off than those whom they accuse since everyone has sin? Well, the truth is, it doesn't matter what the sin is. The sin can be anything. Sin may seem more abhorrent horizontally from person to person based upon many factors. But 
In reality, there is no such thing as a big sin versus a little sin. There is no bad sin versus a not-so-bad sin. All sin is sin. And all sin ultimately separates us from God who is perfect. There is no remedy for sin outside repentance via God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Until we establish a relationship with Jesus Christ and are bestowed with a new nature endowed by His indwelling Holy Spirit, we are all spiritually dead and doomed to eternal separation. The good news is sin, all sin, every sin can be forgiven and forgotten. The old nature of sin can be displaced by a new nature alive in Christ by faith. The key is repentance versus rebellion. The evidence of repentance and a new nature is transformation. Once we are truly justified and given a new nature, old things are passed away. All things are new. We are progressively sanctified and conformed into the image and likeness of Christ. So, the distinction is this. True Christians are those who have sincerely been driven by God's Holy Spirit to experience the five C stepping stones of conviction, confession, conversion, confirmation, and consummation. Those who are separated from God are and remain separated not only by sin, but ultimately by rebellion to God. The various behaviors which are a result of sin are the symptoms, whereas rebellion is the condition. Sin can be forgiven, but rebellion must be cured because rebellion is an inability to repent and to accept forgiveness as well as transformation. So, for example... A thief can and will be forgiven of their theft when they are drawn to accept, trust, and believe in the finished work of Christ Jesus. If genuine, God's indwelling spirit will transform and deliver that person from their old nature and desire to steal. This doesn't mean that they will never steal again, or if they do, that they are automatically disbarred from being Christian. What it means is that having a new nature, they no longer have to serve the desire to steal and have victory against the forces that would drive them to steal. Conversely, when someone says that they are a Christian or that they have a relationship with Jesus Christ, yet every day they serve the forces of the flesh and the world without any sense of conviction, or desire to repent and be reconciled to God, that person demonstrates that they are in rebellion. Ultimately, the key is grace. Any person who has truly been transformed, renewed, born again, experiences God's love and will be empowered to surrender everything to the Lord, beginning with rebellion. 
Anytime you find yourself fencing off limits, pet sins, habits, and areas of your life, and trying to justify those areas to yourself and others, this in part demonstrates rebellion against and separation from God to the same degree. Thus, to argue that Christians cannot talk about or recognize sin unless they are perfect for fear of being hypocritical is to say that no one can talk about sin, use judgment and discernment, save Jesus himself. What is permissible, expected, and even commanded is for imperfect Christians who are perfected by Christ's covering atonement to use discernment and judgment along with God's word to recognize, point out, and admonish via God's word those who, to one degree or another, remain in rebellion to God's will. The pivotal crux is that it would indeed be hypocritical for anyone to reprove another regarding rebellion to God, while the one doing said reprisal are themselves in rebellion to God. However, as long as we are sincerely surrendered to the sanctifying forces and will of God through faith in Jesus Christ, being imperfect in the flesh does not preclude the Christian from teaching, instructing, admonishing, or reproving another person who demonstrates a spirit of rebellion to God and his word in any area. It also does not make them hypocritical on its face. Question 8. Christianity is supposed to be about love. So, why can't a person be free to, quote, love, unquote, another person, regardless of who they are? Well, unfortunately, as too often is the case, this question carries several logical fallacies which are fatal to correctly understanding a biblical answer. First of all, as discussed earlier, the misapplication and sloppy usage of the term, quote, Christian, unquote, is what creates the assumption that it is the world and its sentiments which define and articulate what is and is not Christian. Second, the term, quote, love, unquote, can be defined in many ways, including love in the sense of the Greek word eros, which is better defined by sexual love or lust in a baser meaning. Then there is the Greek word philo, which means a brotherly type love. Lastly, there is the Greek word agape, which means a self-sacrificial love. Third, we have the idea that Christianity is about love in exclusion to all else. However, Christianity is primarily about following and submitting to God through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Under this umbrella, God's Spirit gives the believer many gifts and calls each one of us to do many things via His power, including justice, mercy, grace, compassion, righteousness, charity, love, patience, kindness, and truth, just to name a few. Love is very important. However, even with the stipulation that love is at the top of the list, love does not cancel out or dismiss the remaining characteristics and gifts of God. 
Thus, love does not coexist with injustice, unrighteousness, dishonesty, or rebellion in the life of a Christian. Additionally, we have the idea of freedom, whether it be freedom to love or freedom to do anything in life. While the concept of total, unconditional, and unilateral freedom is a nice concept, the actual working model for freedom is somewhat different. Take your ordinary household dog, for example. Let us set two dinner plates on the floor ten feet in front of our dog. On the first plate, we will put a nice selection of fresh garden vegetables. On the second plate, we will put some ground hamburger. Now, I go to great lengths to tell the dog that he or she is, quote, free, unquote, to choose and eat either plate equally without hurting my feelings. In the end, no matter how many times I try this experiment, the dog always makes the same choice to eat the hamburger. Even when I set the hamburger plate an extra 20 feet further away, the dog passes by the vegetables and eats the hamburger. Why? Because the dog cannot overcome his nature despite being given an objective choice. The same is true of man. Man had the freedom of choice of good and evil in the garden. But because man chose rebellion, man's freedom, man's nature is now in bondage, flawed conditionally to serve sin in the flesh. So, when we talk about freedom to do things, and in particular, freedom to, quote, love, unquote, we need to remember that without God's redemptive spirit implanted in us through the new birth, via relationship born of grace, through faith, the freedom and the choices we are unavoidably discussing are marred by our old nature due to sin. Thus, apart from Christ, the things and the people we have the freedom to choose to love will inevitably likely be things and people outside of God's will and plan for us and our lives. In addition, the greater our rebellion to God's will, the greater the pull sin has on our nature and the farther freedom infected by sin can and will cause us to depart from God. In truth, freedom and love have become convenient buzzwords designed specifically to distract and unbalance worldly thinkers. After all, who can be against generic ideals like freedom and love? But the reality is that rebellion and sin take freedom and love and usually transform the potential for these idealistic terms and degrade them into licentiousness and lust. This is the case not only with words like freedom and love, but with language in general. Despite this, the world of the unregenerate rebelliously and jealously maintain the veneer of noble-sounding words, as in the case of freedom and love, and they can and they use them to accuse those of the house of God of attempting to rob them of the supposed, quote, rights, unquote, that they have carefully invented and defined using their own dictionary. The unregenerate try to maintain that they would never think of robbing the house of God of the right to freely worship God, 
All they want is the right to be free to do what they want and love whom they please. Well, I would ask those in the world a question. Since, according to you, the greatest and most inviolable freedom above all else is to, quote, love whom you please, unquote, then why is each person in the body of Christ not free to, quote, love, unquote, Jesus Christ and to obey him above all else? Question 9. Aren't Christians demonstrating hate and intolerance when they refuse to support people who are simply seeking freedom to do what they want? Well, once again, we have a number of terms which deserve careful definition before we can answer. We have already discussed the issue of the word, quote, Christian, unquote, and its divergent meanings between the Bible and man's definitions. We have also discussed the topic of having, quote, freedom, unquote, to do or not do something, which, as we saw, is a word used in a vacuum without meaning unless we first ask whether the freedom is being exercised pre or post new birth via the absence or presence of the Spirit of God acting in one's life. Lastly, there are the pejorative terms, quote, hate, unquote, and, quote, intolerance, unquote. In large part, many proponents from the secular camp have weaponized today's vocabulary and debate with an arsenal of isolated, out-of-context words carrying highly negative connotations like, quote, hate, unquote, and, quote, intolerance, unquote, which they keep locked and loaded and ready to indiscriminately deploy into everyday language specifically designed to categorize people into defensive positions from which they are forced to attempt to escape from being, quote, evil, unquote, scapegoats based upon the labels themselves and nothing else. Having redefined and selectively injected these pejorative terms into the discussion, they then apply them to create categorical fallacies, straw man, ad hominem, a hidden assumption, and self-contradictory arguments upon their foundation. Most, if not all, of these terms are designed to produce an immediate, instinctive, visceral response by all who hear them, and in particular those who stand accused of them. In fact, they are so polarized that most people will say or do anything to prevent themselves from being labeled with them. The problem is that in order to completely 100% avoid having them applied, one would have to potentially be ready, willing, and able to agree with and abide by anything and everything that the world around us proposes, no matter how offensive, debased, deviant, or anti-scriptural the ideas and actions might be. Otherwise, the minute someone attempts to dissent or disagree, these terms are used, regardless of the merits of the argument, pro or con, in order to foot-sweep those in the body of Christ into submission. It is also assumed that because these words and the concepts they portray are evil, that no one who stands accused can therefore truly 
be, quote, Christian, unquote, since, for example, according to atheists, secular humanists in the world, God is, quote, love, unquote, and never, quote, hates, unquote, anything. God is, quote, tolerant, unquote, and is never, quote, intolerant, unquote, toward anyone or anything. Since God neither hates nor is intolerant, it stands to reason that anyone who proclaims themselves to be Christian cannot hate or be intolerant and still be a Christian. Thus, based upon the circular argument created by the world, anyone who finds themselves labeled with these pejorative terms cannot be a real Christian, since real Christians love everyone and everything without distinction. Likewise, real Christians are tolerant of everyone and everything, because to do otherwise might hurt someone's feelings or upset them. However, in reality, God reveals the fact throughout Scripture that there are many things he hates and is intolerant of. Those of the world do not agree with this because the world does not believe that Satan, evil, sin, or rebellion exist. All of these are supposed inventions of those men who have a guilty conscience. According to the world, once we do away with such ideas and learn to properly analyze ourselves and the world around us, we can proudly and confidently proclaim along with Thomas Harris, quote, I'm okay, you're okay, unquote. Unfortunately, such artificial platitudes require us not only to vote to eliminate Satan, evil, sin, and rebellion, they also force us to eliminate God, righteousness, good, and submission, since belief in either presumes the idea that there are absolutes and an ultimate authority in the universe apart from man. The world finds it necessary to reject God and the idea of his ultimate authority, or at least to water it down into meaninglessness in order that the world can feel free, at ease, to do whatever is right in its own eyes without comment, ridicule, or in particular conviction from God and his authority. In distinction from the world, God calls those who are by his grace to respond and to repent of their rebellion, to follow and to be separated to him. In order to understand hate and intolerance and to properly assign blame, it is necessary to recognize that hate and intolerance are virtues of the world who is in rebellion to the sovereign will and perfect pleasure of God, who created all things, and who sustains all things. God predicted that because of sin, the world, as well as those in rebellion, would be at enmity with God. God prefers peace and joy. However, this can only come with repentance from rebellion and sin, since God cannot change or accept sin in his presence. What the world in fact sees and experiences is its own enmity when it encounters God, his church, or his people. 
However, rather than recognizing their enmity from God, the world wrongly labels what they experience as, quote, hate, unquote, and, quote, intolerance, unquote. Worse for them is the fact that rather than correctly taking responsibility for being the source of enmity with their unconfessed rebellion and sin, they seek to displace and or misplace those traits onto God, his church, and his people. Nevertheless, Jesus himself clarifies the truth of the matter in John chapter 7, verse 7. Quote, The world cannot hate you, but me it hateth, because I testify of it that the works thereof are evil, unquote. Also, John chapter 15, verses 18 and 19. Quote, If the world hate you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. If ye were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you, unquote. For more information on a correct biblical understanding of the term hate, I would direct those interested to the episode entitled, A Biblical Perspective on Hate and Judgment. Question 10. Jesus forgave the woman caught in the sin of adultery and said to them who were intent on stoning her, quote, Let him who is without sin cast the first stone, unquote. Doesn't this demonstrate that True Christians are supposed to forgive those who continue to involve in same-sex relations? Well, in order to answer, we must first understand that the question typically posed presents an out-of-context, hidden assumption. In the story presented in John chapter 8, verse 11, we find the additional comment by Jesus, which is typically, if not always, left out of the above question. Quote, and Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go, and sin no more. Unquote. So, from a complete theological context, we see that the woman and everyone else involved in the above incident, save Jesus, had sinned and have fallen short of God's glory. Like this woman, God's grace is sufficient for all to receive forgiveness. When Jesus spoke, this woman was not the only one present. Further, we know that according to Romans chapter 3, verse 23, all who were present, except Jesus, were in need of forgiveness. This points out several things regarding the above question. First, again, all sin is sin, and all sin separates us completely from any fellowship with God. Second, God, in His infinite and perfect counsel, must, according to His grace, draw man's unbelieving heart of stone to be moved, to soften, and hear His call to repentance. In the end, this is why the woman responds, while those around her do not. Third, when man is drawn to sincere repentance, God is not content to simply abandon those who he delivers back to the bondage of sin, whatever that may be. 
God instead pours out his spirit, which implants a new nature in those whom he truly redeems. We are new creations, risen with Christ, who not only no longer condemns us, but gives us power and victory over sin. Consequently, we note that Jesus gave the woman the command to, quote, go and sin no more, unquote. Nowhere do we read that Jesus tells the woman that it is okay to continue in unrepentant sin or rebellion to God because he, quote, loves her. The underlying truth is that it is God's will and desire to conform those whom he wills to his image so that he can fellowship with man. In order to do this, God must change us. Typically, secular man, as exhibited by the above question, often labors under the delusion that it is man who is using whatever means necessary to bend God or his word so that, in fact, God is conforming to the likeness of sinful man. Thus, those who willfully remain in rebellion to any sin, including same-sex relations, have not truly submitted and humbled themselves to Jesus. And as a result of that choice, they do not yet qualify for forgiveness from God or his people until they receive God's grace and are willing to sincerely do so. This concludes this episode. Please join me for part three. Now, if you have any questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I encourage you to send me an email at pastor underscore Yeshua at yahoo.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R underscore Y-E-S-H-U-A at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. Trust